Hands of My Podcast is a proud member of DarkCast Network, presenting the brightest of indie podcasts. This episode will discuss sensitive and potential triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and trauma, and will contain details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find offensive, disturbing, and or distressing. This episode may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo. And this is MW bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, Black indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. Hola and bienvenidos to my avid listeners as well as my new listeners of the podcast. This is a spoiler alert announcement. If you haven't watched the new documentary by Bird Sosa called Our Precious Hope, St. Louis, Little Jane Doe Revisited, please go to the show notes and click and watch it now before this interview. We hit on all parts of his film. He is my special guest, Edouard Bird Sosa, director of Our Precious Hope and Our Precious Hope Revisited. His documentary is the winner of Best Film in 2022 by Dark History and Horror Con's Screaming Mad Film Festival. I will have all his contact information in the show notes, as well as a full YouTube interview link. I wanted to thank you. First off, um, this is a great time to speak with you specifically because I want to hit the ground running for the new year in regards to the St. Louis Jane Doe. And I have and I think I've even I mentioned to you or via email that I have uh, MW is working with me. So which is pretty cool. I mean, it's it's like a full circle on this event. So I guess it was meant to happen for me. If I could have your name and what do you do and why are you uh, speaking with me today is, I guess, to do kind of an intro for this podcast. Okay, absolutely. Yeah, my name's Heather Sosa. I do go by Bird. Everybody calls me Bird. It's been my nickname pretty much my whole life. Uh, I'm from St. Louis. Uh, I have a, a bachelor of science degree in criminology, which I've never used until doing this film. So... The long story short is um, this happened when I was about nine, getting ready to turn 10 years old. And I, I kind of remember it, but what draws me back to it is I can remember being outside at that age and my mom telling me, uh, you need to, to come in because they're cutting little kids' heads off. Now, yeah, that's a weird sense of humor, but you got to remember at that time, Adam Walsh was decapitated. This had happened. Then there were the Atlanta child murders all happening around that time. And in St. Louis, the year prior, there had been two decapitations as well So of, of children. So I can understand. So it's something me and my mom talked about during the course of, of her life. She passed away in 2016. And, you know, grieving, I said, you know, I kind of want to do a documentary kind of 
because it's something me and my mom talked about. But you know, you say stuff and that you don't really you mean it, but you don't mean it. You know, I got COVID in um, late February, early March of 2021. And at that time, they weren't letting people in the hospital or anything. So it's just you in a room with your thoughts. And I wasn't doing well. You know, it was a chance I couldn't make it. So I told myself one night, I'm just laying there and I just said, you know what, if I make it out, I'm going to go ahead and make this film. So I did. I made it out. I sold my car a week later and I used the money from the sale of that car to buy the equipment. You know, I had to research the equipment first because to get it streaming, you have to have certain cameras and things like that. And went into the research because I knew what everybody else knew, but I also knew a lot of it didn't make sense to me. You know? So early on, a friend of mine that I used to play basketball with named uh, Ty Dennis, he had left St. Louis and became a, a, a gang detective in Atlanta. So he's actually in the film as well. So when I was gathering the information, I'd get excited about this or that, you know, but he actually gave me one piece of advice to do this film, which I used in every aspect of the film. And that was, how does that add to the story and what does it change? So if it wasn't in addition or changed the narrative, it didn't need to be in there. So great advice. Wow. Well, I love to hear the backstory that it was like, what made you push in this direction? What gave you that that extra drive in focusing specifically on her case? And oh my gosh. I'm excited that people were actually talking about it, you know what I mean? Because just felt like for a while, I mean, you would get YouTube videos here and there, but they're just regurgitating the same information over and over. Yeah. So. Uh, when I reviewed your documentary and then I was I looked previously before your documentary, uh, I also was going through other YouTube channels and the bits of pieces just didn't seem to fit how my mind works. And that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you, because in your documentary, you had completely covered a plethora of information that no one else had done. So I thank you for that. And it's interesting how you just had it released this year. So when was it released this year exactly? So it was released for streaming on, uh, we were told September 15th, but it actually got released on September 29th, which they tell me is unusual. It's usually like around within a couple of weeks of the date that they issue it. I had done an hour long kind of YouTube one last year with just a couple of interviews on it. I think it was four interviews total, but we got like 30,000 likes in a month and a half. So we, everybody, we had some people saying, hey, what are we going to do next? But then the majority of people were like, no, you stick with this. Like, like if you got that far, go further. So that's what I decided to do. So I was on this case probably close to two years, probably about wow. 20 months total. Just only on the St. Louis J. Doe. So yeah. Wow, wow. That's how Meriwether got pulled in after the first one uh, in MW. So she, so I had reached out to a couple of podcasters in the beginning to see if they wanted to, to work together or whatever, and nobody really reached back out to me. So I had reached out to her, and she watched the first one. And this is when I wanted to bring her in as a researcher because she watched my film a bunch of times and reached out to me asking questions and then 
after like a week of that, she sent me like this 15 page paper that she had written out minute by minute and minute. And, and so I thought that was cool. That was something that could definitely add to us, you know, developing the timeline and everything. And speaking about uh, her, this is where we'll get to that point. But there is something about the psychic that, that me and her worked together on that, that really helped us get the answer we got. So. Right. Yeah, she is a hardcore researcher. And I. it's just so interesting how we kind of came across. I think I was going through her YouTube channel and I was like, oh, my gosh, she has such a, a vibrant soul in, in, in her passion in her podcasting and research. And I was like, nobody's following her. Like, what's going on there? And I'm like, here, I just started my true crime podcast this April of 2022. So I'm fresh to the industry in regards to this genre. But I've been doing podcasting for probably going on almost two years. But it's so interesting how this world has kind of had a full circle in regards to how we all met up. And then I was doing the same thing, too, where I was reaching out to people who wanted to come onto my podcast, um, like in my intro, I like to speak with people who are advocates and people who are allies to the people of color community and stories that have not been heard at all. Um, and I talk directly with the families of lost loved ones and I get the in-depth stories about who these persons were before they became, you know, tragically at the end of their life. And I I wanted to take a piece of that because I wanted to connect all humanity that they're just not someone in the article for a five second read. They had a life of 20 years before that, 40 years before that, five years before that, and no one knows about it unless you're a family member. That being stated, uh, I was reaching out to different types of organizations like Seed Sovereignty uh, in regards to the indigenous data file that so this woman created a database specifically to keep track of indigenous people in, in the community of um, the United States. And I think she's trying to brought it into the Canadian area. You know, that comes to play in this story, right? It's deeper. And honestly, MW, I don't know if she told you, but she, in our investigation, she played a big role in that. So yeah. you should really go in depth with her about that, especially if you're looking at that. Uh, I'm sorry yeah. to touch no, she's very humble in her in her things. <laughs> because I just tell you a little bit about that. So I won't name the name of the detective because he didn't want to be on the film. But one of the major detectives went down. So if you remember the lady in 2002, Sharon Nolte, uh, spent her own money. And so mm -hmm. she, she told me it was, you know, a Native American woman. So they went to Minnesota to a school where she said it was or whatever. And what they uncovered was that there had been a, a big majority of the kids from that school came up missing and murdered. So it just opened up something bigger than this case was. And they had already known through DNA that she was African-American and not Native American. So they didn't even want to get involved in that because of that reason, because it was just too massive of a case. And I, I just thought that was neat. And, and Meriwether, so that, that's something she has. She actually found 
the lady, we, we, I told her, I want to find this lady. She found the lady and uh, called her. And the lady sent her like five or six, like little three minute messages through text messaging and stuff. So, wow. But it was, yeah, it was going nowhere. That lady basically was saying that she didn't know what Sharon Nolte was talking about. Like, <laughs> so. But yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off there. No, no. Like I said, everything's full circle. Every, we're all connected in by three degrees. Um, yeah. So I was reaching out to a lot of the nonprofit organizations, people who are advocates, who are them themselves are people of color, indigenous, um, the LGBTQ community. And then I got a hold of Parabon Nanolabs and I just kind of threw an email out there. I'm like, and they're like, sure, let's do that. And I'm like, oh my God, okay. But it was so exciting to see such powerful women taking charge of something that's just so detrimental in its circumstances. So I just want to share that with you as well. How, how I got drawn to you is because of the film, people send me stuff or whatever. And then you posted on Facebook after you did the CC thing. So people told me, hey, she's listening to St. Louis Jane Doe. So I went and checked it out. And then that's when I heard CC mention the documentary. So that's all funny because I, I had reached out to CC and said, I know you're working on the case. Now, let's just say they don't tell you anything, but they do tell you stuff. So I knew before they officially told me where it was going. You know what I mean? I didn't know her part, but I know she was working. So she just kind of said, hmm, that's funny. That, that was pretty much her only email. So then we get to uh, interview Detective McGlynn, and he's like, well, we're going to give him permission to talk to you, which blew my mind, by the way. And uh, so then I sent the email to Parabon, and I didn't hear anything back for like two or three weeks. So I sent an email to like three different people at Parabon, still didn't hear anything back. Boom, all of a sudden, I just hear, okay, you got the interview, do you want to do it? So she hops on, and she's just like, before we even start, I just want to say kudos to you because I've had this case for almost eight years and I haven't been able to tell a soul. And I'm like, well, I know you have your own TV show, so whatever you don't want to cover, I completely understand. She said, no, I've been waiting to talk about this case for eight years. Let's go. <laughs> she was really cool. Really cool. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Yeah, I, I talked with her this. I think I released it probably about two or three weeks after I did the interview with her. Mm. So, um, yeah, I was so eager to get it out. I was like <laughs> trying to push everything to the side. Like what's considered, oh, I can wait till next week for that. I can do this. So yeah, it was just, it was just beautiful. And I was, I was honored to have them. They're like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, okay, wow. Um, what do we do? <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty exciting to know that, um, all of us are all connected just from this little girl. It's amazing. And um, just looking from that perspective, how even outsiders looking in, we're all connected to this girl, but there's other people who are connected by relations to this girl. And just my heart just breaks, like, especially watching a documentary saying that there was a few people that they've reached out, you know, when CC identified in the end, where they reached out to a couple of people who were connected to her, this literally kind of ghosted her. And, and I was just like flabbergasted, like, dude, if that was like my cousin, my aunt, 
something. And that kind of pushed me to do my DNA test. So that's kind of like how I rolled down into my little video doing my birthday DNA reveal thing that I'm processing. So I just received a Ancestry DNA just contacted me a few days ago saying that they are extracting it as we speak. So they're processing it. So it's about two or four weeks from now, I'll get the results. And I just like feel like I just I need to be a person who encourages others. You know, if I keep talking to talk, but I sure ain't walking a walk. And I and I said, if I'm if I'm telling everybody else to do it, why am I not doing it? Exactly. It's it's funny you released that because we're kind of actually doing the same thing. So with with one of the people that worked on the film, but we're doing doing the process, you know, filming him actually doing it. We're going to film the paperwork because you know, even watching the film, even though they say the steps to do it, like, like, what do you do? You know, mm-hmm. people that need the, that visual, what, what do I need to do? So. Yeah, I am just like, yeah, I'm so excited. I do have a lot of questions. Like, my mind was just racing when I saw, I was in my car because I work night shift. So I'm watching a documentary sitting in my car in between my shift. I'm like, where's my pen? Where is my paper? I have so many questions. Like, so I had to go through it again. And I'm like, okay, is that the question I was going to ask? I have three pages of questions. <laughs> Whatever you need to know. Absolutely. Okay. First off, first off, um, this movie, this documentary is, man, I was, um, how you say it? I was air punching, like the TV, saying a lot of curse words. Um, I'm just beyond aggravated why it took so long and he said on top of that the 40-year anniversary this is not the best anniversary to be celebrating other than you know um not being solved and so there was a couple of pictures a lot of the photos that you had in there and i love you were just so detailed and you're absolutely absolutely right all the information you had was was just spawn on it was a proper flow and understanding what you know, if somebody was coming in and not knowing what, what this story was entailing, you made sure that you painted the picture to give her that, you know, at least the respect and knowing, you know, what had happened. Um, I would love to know who she was before. Um, and that's my goal. I want to get that like out there. It's not a, just about the after effect. It's how can we find closure and find her peace and have the proper family members come out and actually unsilence this whole 40-year-old story of the St. Louis Jane Doe. So in uh, the beginning of your documentary, you know, um, how it all kind of built up to the point where two gentlemen, you did identify who they were in the documentary after you did your research. Yeah, first time ever. And after you were talking, you're like, I didn't even know their names were that. And I'm like, really? (laughs) But yeah, with your research, you found out who those two gentlemen who actually were younger than they were anticipated and um, how they. Yeah, that that was crazy. Not to throw your question off, but like, and you know it from doing the research, it's always said two men. So you're envisioning like 30 year olds or 40 year olds. Right. You're teenagers. Right. Yeah, so that kind of threw me off there. And so now I had to rewire my brain like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait a minute. In the photos, um, I think you also were speaking with Eric, who is also a longtime resident of the area. There was a photos of, of a group of people who were just gathering around the area. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, 
I have that forensic scientist mentality because that was actually what I wanted to do when I graduated from high school. I wanted to go into forensic science. Uh, here I am as a podcaster. How did that happen? So anyway, um, <laughs> those people who are crowding around as onlookers, do you know if anyone went through those photos like a forensic document examiner? Because there's always that saying that the person always comes back to the scene of the crime. And yeah. that would be one question I'd like to know. Yeah, that was definitely a question I had asked. And, and basically, I was told, yeah, that's why those pictures were taken, was, was for that reason. Otherwise, they wouldn't even exist. So those are those are actually police photos, the, the ones that are really detailed in color. So the, those are police photos. Wow. And they were able to at least weed through that and find out that none of these faces look suspicious or... As far as they told me, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that there's even stuff they didn't tell me, you know what I mean? But as far as they told me, yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, you know, my mind was just going in regards to that. And I know that there was a section in there where they were talking about that long walk yeah, yeah. So not today. It's called the the Greenway. Greenway. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So the reason I put that in there is because it's literally like where the building stood. It's just down the alley, maybe sixty feet. So I felt it was important to include that because if this person was on foot, that's a possible route that people may not even knew existed. Other than that, because if I park two blocks over and then take that greenway over. If you're not looking at the greenway, you're not seeing me at three or four in the morning. You know what I mean? So that's why they wouldn't have had to park in front of the building is what I was getting at by showing that greenway. Yeah, I like the way that- It was the Ruth Porter Mall. Yeah, I'm glad that you were able to draw that in, in as informational because that's where Maya decided to make me <laughs> increase my more questions that I had after that. I'm like, okay, now I know why he was saying this. Yeah, the point is, like, on top of that, like, when they found her in not even the first room, but the second room, which was, like, 36 feet away from the entrance. Now, do you, and back to that greenway, you know, do you think they carried her in something to conceal her? Uh, because, first off, you know, they probably pulled her out of something out of a compartment or a bag or tarp or something like that. I'm just, my mind just going because by the second room entrance, they might've pulled her out of wherever they, they had her. And that was the reason for that splatter on that, that second room entrance doorway. There wasn't no information in regards to a blood splatter on the way towards but only it started it began right at that second room entrance so my thought was like did they see if that could be a case this one i'm gonna answer your question this picture i struggled with i used portions of it i struggled with what i wanted to put in there but i felt like first time you see it if you don't know what you're looking at you don't know where your eyes are gonna go so i didn't i out of respect I didn't want to just throw something on there for like shock value. You know what I mean? So I, I wanted everything to have a purpose on why it was. But uh, I would say talking to the officers, I would say that the majority of them feel like she may have been rolled up in something because the way her body is, it's like it's just dropped. 
So, and that could be the way the blood is on the wall, which is the first time people's ever seen where the blood actually was. Because I've heard stories leading up to this where people said it's on the stairwell, well, there's no blood on the stairwell. So you're not carrying her sideways at that point. So then is it two people and you're carrying your top and bottom to get down the stairs? But yeah, I, I would just say that the cops feel like it's just dropped. So yeah, a high probability that she was in something so that there was no blood dripping. Right. Oh my God, it just makes me even more fierce just talking about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> now, Greenway, how long was Greenway? It stretches from, uh, which is Martin Luther King, but it's St. Charles Rock Road, over to the zoo. So I want to say maybe 10 miles, like, like in total, but to the Cabinet Courts, which is thrown to this a lot, you're talking maybe three, four blocks. Like, it's not far at all. And, and it, it really is, from where the building was, you would come out from the rear and make a left, and then you would go down 60 feet, maybe, and it's right there, and then it, it didn't go either way. And it's key, because, like, now, that street is blocked off. Clements is blocked off, so, like, the alley is what's used for, like, traffic going both directions. People use it regularly that's when i'm doing the interview with eric you see trucks and stuff going down the alley that's because that's how they bypass the street being blocked off so very interesting wow 10 miles because i was thinking how close it was to a highway closest to the nexus nearest community uh demographics area like like you said like you mentioned like it could have been a place where someone could walk without being revealed mm -hmm to actual um, street public area. Um, and park a couple of blocks away. Absolutely. And, and if, and again, I'm just saying hypotheticals here. I'm not saying this. Right. Way, like if she's rolled up in a carpet and you're carrying a carpet down the greenway, even if you blast, you're going to see a guy carrying a carpet. You know, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So. Yeah, that makes sense. That completely makes sense. I mean, and people take out their trash every, you know, at all times of the day. They could have thought that this person was just throwing something away in a trash bag and, you know, yeah. whatever. Hypothetically, I, I don't know for sure, but that's what I would think. So what got me like viewing all these other ideas is that when they found her, she had that red and white rope, that twine. See, I'm not familiar with different types of knots, but I was thinking, like, did they even look to see what the type of rope technique that they were using was this person might have had a scout knots, Bodhi knots, sail knots, military fly fish knots. Probably you, he or she used this particular knot for that purpose. Um, they were previous military. They might have done Bodhi knots, um, scout knots if they were previous um, Boy Scouts. Did they go through all that? I would say yes, uh, especially talking to Brian McGlynn. So I took the knots. I even posted pictures in Euro European groups, and I, I talked to quite a few of, of knot tying groups, and they all told me the same thing, that there is no distinguishable knot. It's just like lashings turning around. So there is no actual knot in the photos that they can see. So when I talked to the police about that, they told me, that their military expert told them the exact same information. So it, it's been looked at by Navy people and not tying organizations through me, and they had it looked at by military as well. So, 
And it tie it all ties together uh, because if you remember Dr. Joy Carter, she clearly says that there's skin slippage on the knee, skin slippage on, or on the chest, and there's none, there's no skin slippage around the wrist. So that means that if they weren't tied extremely tight, or else it, it, it would have caused damage, and it didn't. So I, I, people may miss that in the film. And again, her interview was three hours. I had to cut it down to 30 minutes. But, but yeah, so it wasn't extremely tight. It was more of a control uh, tie. And I, I again, my opinion here, we really don't know what happened. I think they probably left it on because it was easier to move the body. With her in such panic and what was going through her mind, she probably did not know that uh, she wasn't tied up. It started out like a game, you know, kind of like they said John Wayne Gacy used to do. You know, you don't know what they were. You could have been doing cowboys and Indians or something just to to get like that. I mean, Mm. we just don't know. But I will say this about the rope. so over the course of years, it's always been said that it was nylon rope. Well, it was, it was uh, actually, again, through my research, it's polyurethane. They didn't even make nylon rope at that time. And I, I had it very, which I had the picture verified uh, that that's what it would have been. The police did agree that, that that's probably what it was. They don't have it either. And this is information that the police gave me that they weren't sharing at the time. It's not in the film because... Again, it was something that probably would get misinterpreted, but that particular rope, now my numbers may be off by one or two here, but you'll get where they're going. So I believe they told me that that particular rope is spun at 153 threads to make that rope. This rope only had 152. So they kept that information hidden because they felt like if they could figure out the company that was spinning rope at 152, then they know where the world came from. And they just haven't been able to figure One thing I'm proud of in putting this out, the uh, the Doe Network actually corrected the fact that she does not have spina bifida, has been misreported. And they also included about the green paint that was found in her neck. And they cite my film as that source. So I'm proud of that. I really am to be able to change her narrative because it could have been so many years that people were thinking it wasn't their loved one because she didn't have spina bifida. You know, yeah, and I was thinking of that too. Like, I'm so glad I saw your documentary. I'm like, I know there was a lot of people who go in different. I know I'm like, whatever, but there's different other web sleuth and stuff like that who've said like this could be this person. And I'm like, no, it's rule those out. You know, right. so I'll throw something on your podcast. No, no one's ever asked me. So you'll be the only, even though all the, but that wasn't a bunch, but the few interviews I did, no one's ever asked me this question. So this would be. Definitely only for you. So the way I was able to determine, I had the picture. I had a picture of where the body was located, like I just showed you. So I knew where it was. The way I was able to get the measurements was because the building doesn't exist anymore. So I had to find a blueprint of the building. Well, there is no blueprint of the building. But I remember when I was in college, I helped the guy research a book, uh, and he had me to look at something called the. Uh, Sunborn maps, which were the fire company that was for the city of St. Louis, they did maps of every building. So once I was able to find those maps, I was able to find the one for this particular building, which gave me the imprint of how the basement looked. So that's how I ended up with that actual blueprint 
of uh, the film was because of something I learned when I was 18 years old. <laughs> that is so interesting. You never thought that, like, how can you keep all that information, after, you know, from... And, you know, like, like really, I, I, I didn't even remember I remembered that, you know what I mean? But, like, when I was like, how can I get this? It just popped in my head. You know, Randy McGuire showed you that. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, what got me going was when they were explaining about the mold, I was like, and then when that, I, I believe that... Um, Dr. Joy Carter. Yes, 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 yes. yes. Fabulous person. Fabulous person. I want to pick her brain. She's the kind of woman that I just want to be sitting there and just like listening to her because she has so much, you know, rich in, in information and the intelligence is just so, so much you couldn't put in one documentary. But for her to explain about the metal dust and the mold and, you know, the assault that was done unto St. Louis Jane Doe or Precious Hope. Just a thought of all of that, like, you know, my mind was just racing, like, yes, Molin. And I you, I think it, there was a section where you did identify that it was um, Mole that was possibly from the instrument that but did cut meat. Yes, that cuts meat. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, again, information that hasn't been out there. But here's a great story about, about the Mole. Okay. Mm -hmm. So after doing this for about a year, um, I, I've called the Missouri Botanical Garden a couple of times, and they're like, "Man, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about." Okay, so I'm like, okay, "I got to find this mold report." So I asked the detective. At this point, I had already did an interview with with Brian McGlynn, and so it, it, you know he was a great resource for me. And I'm like, "Well, I think I can get a copy of the mold report." And he's like, "Man, I haven't seen the mold report. So if there was one, it would it would be back there." side. So get a hold of the medical examiner's office again. And I'm like, so I'm looking for a mold report. And I still have the emails for this. So the lady tells me, she said, uh, well, there is no mold report in the autopsy file. You, you have the autopsy. That, that's all we have that's in there. So then I get a second email right back and said, you know what? There's a lady that's retiring. They used to work here in 1983. Let me ask her and see if she knows. So a week later, I get another email. And she says, so it wasn't in the file, but she remembered where it was and went and gave it to him. Let me get the copy and then put it back in the file. So had she retired, that would have been lost forever. It's just like you said, it's like a circle. Everything just happens for a reason, you know what I mean? So it was crazy that that was. And then, of course, I sent the copy to the St. Louis police. So, but also what's nuts about that report which made sense after I talked to Dr. Mary Case, was that it, it says St. Louis University. It doesn't say the Missouri Botanical Garden. But Mary Case told me that she worked for St. Louis University. She just worked at the St. Louis Moore. So their employer was the university, but they were lent out to other. So that's why it made sense that they, they probably were working at the Botanical Garden, but they were working for St. Louis University. Yeah, that's interesting because there's always like a third party or you have a contract, you work alongside another organization. My gosh. <laughs> Thank you, Bird. Oh, Holy no. crap. <laughs> Holy crap. So, yeah, it was just like Dr. Carter, who identified, like, found the mold. <laughs> it took them about four or five days to grow the mold. If they looked even deeper about metal dust and that wasn't 
looked upon, if I'm not mistaken. No, uh, that, that part of the interview is actually a lot longer. I, I, I hated to cut it down. But she, she basically went into, like, at that time, they were actually developing with the, the United States uh, military was developing that process of how to do it. And it was being introduced to her because she, which is great about her, is she was in the, in the 80s. She was in Miami. That's where she was studying. I mean, she, I mean, she graduated school, but that's where she was coming into her own. So, you know, the cocaine wars are going on. There's a lot of dead bodies, decapitated bodies. So she's like the perfect person to look at this. And, and, and the crazy thing about that, again, full circle, is she actually, the autopsy is four pages. When we did our interview, she had a stack of papers like this. She had 10 times as many pages about those pages than the original doctor. So, she, I mean, she really gave me a gift because she didn't charge me anything, uh, which was awesome. Like, she really did it for the little girl because she had never heard of this case. And then I said, what do you want me to tell you about it? She said, no, I, I don't want anything to cloud, you know, my thinking. So let me just review this and then we can talk about it. So she went completely blind and just went off what she saw. Wow. A lot of this wouldn't, wouldn't have happened without the group of people who actually gave a damn. And, there, and, and, and honestly, there, there, there are people that still do like CC. I can tell you right now, in interviewing Brian McGlynn, like he he is into this case, like, like, like every detail, every nook, every cranny. It, it, he is an amazing wealth of knowledge on this case. Really, he he cares. Trust me, mm -hmm. I'm I'm pretty sure you can feel that through the film. Oh yeah, absolutely. This would not have happened if there's a whole lot of group of people who do give a damn, and I'm so glad that her name, and uh, hopefully her actual name, is going to be presented to us. One of the other things I had, like, which kind of floored me, and I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around, when they were talking about the pubic hair, which mm -hmm. got me, like, WTF? What? Like, how can you not rule out particular people, like the law enforcement medical examiner or during transport, to finding a one- single white pubic hair on her inner thigh and you can't rule that out as to who would this be something that the possible person of interest or the suspect could put there to kind of redirect law enforcement in a different direction okay so i didn't put this in the film because again i need to talk about it okay so that hair, even though it's in the story, wasn't found until the next day in the morgue. All right, now here's something I never knew, shocked me. And still, still every time I tell people, you gotta see their face. So you wanna watch your face after I tell you this, cause you're gonna be like, what? So did you know that they reuse body bags? Yes, but they're also supposed to sanitize them. Yeah, well, that wasn't happening. So they believe that it's a huge chance that it, it possibly came from the body bag. So. Okay. But Dr. Carter goes into that, like even in her interview, she says, like, I had to cut it out again because of time and everything. She says, 
it's a white pubic hair, and this is a black child. So, but it wasn't until I talked to the detective that he said, yeah, that was that was actually later that that was found. It wasn't found on the scene. Because there's, you know, I, I love the YouTubers for keeping her name alive, but there's a lot of people who just went and added their own narrative to the story, you know, and they'll say, oh, they noticed it on the crime scene and this, you know, you've seen how dark that basement was from the picture. That's not, it's not happening, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Look at your face. <laughs> I, I had to put the Negrita eye roll in, like, what? I knew, I knew it had to be Oh my god. Okay. Um another thing. The size of the sweater. Did this look like an adult size sweater or was this a larger kid size sweater? Um did it fit her or did it kind of be too baggy? You know, what was the size even though the tag was taken off? Mm -hmm. Do you are you familiar? I mean, cuz I think you even pulled out one that looked similar to it. The green scene, I've showed uh, a couple of the other detectives. Well, I showed Dan Fox. and, and uh, So according to the thread experts that I worked with, it was probably, uh, it was definitely a men's sweater. And it was probably a size medium. They don't believe it was a small because of the structure of the stitching underneath the armpit. Uh, as far as the, the way it fit the body, there's no actual pictures of, fit because the neck is stretched uh in the original sweater so it could have been stretched it could have been pulled and then the way when she's laying on it, it could be pulled up so I, just based off on a picture they said they couldn't tell like the snugness to her body but but they they believe because of the stitching that that's what it was yeah, yeah uh, I, I, I tell you what when, when you start in, interviewing with the police they always want to vet you like why are you doing this why are you doing that but once you pull the sweater out and show them, it changes. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, because um, I know that the part where um, Dr. Carter did identify that she went through a lot of suffering um, right. based on the asphyxiation and the blood and so forth. Um, I wonder if that had something to do with grabbing her and keeping her still while he, he or she or whoever was inflicting this pain onto her probably a reason why it was stretched out or maybe dragged her afterwards into it's just a whole lot of just oh my gosh my mind is just going all over the place but before you ask your question i do want to say this too yes so the so i had told the police that i was going to get a forensic pathologist to tell me what the autopsy said it was actually the police's idea for me to include how severe the rape was in the film because they said there's it never was really known if she was or wasn't but they wanted everyone to know how severe it was. That was a, going that deep into the rape was what the police wanted done. So, yeah. It, um, um, just a personal note: I was sexually assaulted by my father. So I know I was at age nine. So I was literally around her age. So I understand all of that. Um, so when he explained it to me, this was like flashback. Um, the one and one and a half. No, it's I'm I'm healed. I'm in the journey. That's the reason why I'm doing I'm giving back. My pain becomes love and uh, determination for other people because I know I've been there. But just the thought of them explaining 
in detail from the vaginal area to the perineum area, which is the anal area um, being torn and an internal organ, internal vaginal wall is ruptured and hemorrhaging and just the thought. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to cry. Yeah, she was ripped apart. There's actually a photo. Uh, so I, I'll say this to, to preface what the photo is. So a lot of people show the hands photo and say that's a crime scene photo. It's not. That's a more photo. If you actually look past her leg, you'll see the white sheet from the morgue. So it's not actually a crime scene photo. Uh, but there is a portion of that. that if you see the whole photo, you can see some of her insides out. So that's probably why it's cropped the way it is. She was destroyed. I, and I'm not... It, it's sad, but I, again, I tried to, Dr. not even just me, Dr. Carter as well, we tried to deliver the appropriate message in a respectful way, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> imagine, imagine this. You know, I, I have daughters and everything. Imagine I had to go to bed with this every night for two years, thinking, what am I missing? So... And 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 Mary has seen the entire has seen and taken notes on the entire three hour interview with Dr. Carter. Because there's other because there's other stuff. What while you're you're doing that, I tell you that Dr. Carter believes that this wasn't a murderer. She believes that this is a rapist. This may be his first or second victim, and the only reason that this child was murdered, decapitated, was because he was, he knew her. So, but she believed this is the crime of rapist. She asked me to have the police go back in that time and look at rapist as opposed to murderer. She thinks that the investigation may have went the wrong direction, but based upon the severity of the crime, the way that there was aspirated blood and everything that she believes it was a rapist. Yeah. <clears throat> what you shared with me right then and how it affected you. Yeah. You can relate to the to the crime, so she's probably right, honestly. Yeah. Um, Do you need a break? No, let's keep going. Um, so also, you there was a when you were speaking to Eric, he identified there was a hospital a couple blocks away from the area. So my thought process was, if this he or she or wh whoever the suspect is. If there was possibly, they might have had some type of injury in the process of murdering this beautiful child. Maybe they might have had head, you know, hand injuries, um, using a knife or whichever, or maybe some type of defensive wounds that you know, Precious Hope was actually trying to defend herself. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they have a record of a person coming in because I, I think Eric was saying. Yeah, we got a couple, you know, there's a lot of gunshot wound victims that come in here and they take care of us um, whenever there's, and they're really good with the, with patients like that. But I wonder if they even had somebody who came across who is familiar, because I think just the process of looking at the billing when you did the simulation of where the, what the billing looked like, that's a place where someone who wasn't familiar with the area would not known it was there. And maybe this person was a local. 
maybe maybe moved out of, of the area because it was getting too suspicious for other people to know that this person was around. So, but they knew the area. Um, maybe they went to this hospital and had some injuries tended to. Is there records of that? Do they even look into that by any chance? I didn't, I didn't ask that question. Uh, were they looking for bite marks or slats, sliced hands or anything? Uh, I did feel it was important because this it literally is only two and a half blocks away uh, from where this is at. I felt it was important to show that I had thought in the beginning, what, what, what if the child was, they were trying to get her help and she died along the way, so they were trying to hide it or something. So I wanted to show if she was an injured child originally, that there was help in the area, but they chose not to to go and, and, and you know, get her help. So, but no, I did. Your, your question is a great question. So it's not one that I thought to ask. And what Dr. And I is key focus on Dr. Carr. She is just full of knowledge. Just amazing to listen to. First ever African-American chief medical examiner in the country. That's what I'm saying, girl. <laughs> Get it, you know. But uh, she identified like mostly the, the damage was done towards her face. And which, um, which, which has never been known even by the police. Yeah. So they actually asked me to see her, her interview because I remember the question the night we premiered it for a couple of officers. They're like, why her? And I'm like, well, she's a, a forensic pathologist. And they were like, no, that's not what I'm asking. We've had eight other people look at this, and she's the only one to point that out to us. And it made perfect sense to them. And they knew the information was there, but no one else had tied it together. Yes, because she was she was spot on. You have to have someone who is familiar with the lividity in the, um, the livor that she was identifying based on people of color their skin and their um, blemishes or their lividity and their rigor mortis or whatever stages of after death is completely different than someone who has lighter skin patterns are the same but you have to literally have that particular understanding on what the skin does in that that step of the process of of death and dying and um inflict a pain so she was on it the part where she was identifying that they did not find any food in her stomach. Mm-hmm. Did they even look to see if in her small or large intestines to see if she is eaten at all? How long is the process of not having no food in their system? How long does that take for a child between the ages of 8 to 11 years? For her, how long does she have to go without no food in her system? To not right. have anything shown in the autopsy as any food or any evidence of being fed. Absolutely. Uh, so, as it's always been stated, it does stated uh, in the autopsy as well. But it, it it has always been stated that she wasn't malnourished, so she was eating. So it's probably during the course of you know we always hear four hours or whatever. So I would I, again, this is my estimation. I, she probably hadn't eaten at least in eight hours because there were, there was nothing in the stomach. I, I'm not a doctor. It could be listed. Could Dr. Carter, not that I can remember said anything about the intestines. Um, the gym bag was found after discovery and removal of, um, St. Louis Jane Doe. Right. 
is that like a drug drop off or something? You know, like I they were completely saying specifically in that area there was a lot of drug drugs and prostitution. Right. So I can say that in in asking that question, uh, it's not even a, a question I asked Bergoglio in the beginning. He just he was going into how thorough they did everything, and that later they get that call that there's a gym bag in there. And then when I asked McLean about it, he's like. Yeah, and there's a police report on it. So I would assume there's something else that goes with it for them to make a police report on it. But yes, at this time, it was a very high drug area. So it wasn't in 83 from Eric and other people that lived in the community that we talked to. It, it wasn't a crack area yet. It was heroin and something that they called a, a tees and blues. So it was, it was drugs, heavy drugs, but different drugs than crack. Because a lot of times you hear, or you'll see online, oh, it was the crack era. It, it wasn't in St. Louis at that moment yet. Yeah, I don't know. I don't um, know that area. I mean, in regards to drug of choice. Uh, <laughs> right, right. But right. Uh, I think 83, I was six years old. So, um, I yeah. Nine, so. <laughs> yeah, so it's like my drug of choice was probably chocolate. There you right, go. Right, right. <laughs> I had a six years old um, core. I, honestly, they came in later. Uh, they were trying to be a part of it. Uh, they were organizing a couple of uh, meetings. I, I, I want to say that they organized a meeting at in front of the vacant buildings like a year later, demanding they be torn down. That was their main focus. And the guy went to core because of that. You know, they're, they're kind of the name that's being associated in the press with, with this one representative. It, it said that there was a representative of Congress at the first funeral. I think they meant in that ar article that they were talking about core, not actually Congress, but it isn't stated core. It says Congress, but I do believe because it's a lady. You can see her in one of the pictures, which talking about the pictures, no one had ever contacted. It's the day before he even gave them the, the pictures for them to locate the body. And they didn't even invite him out there to look for the body. And he's never talked to anybody before. So I thought it was important to have somebody at the first funeral to give a perspective on that. So, yeah, absolutely. Wow. And then just to see the process that they had to do, like first was it was a five minute uh, ceremony. And then the search for her after the funeral, you know, they went through, I'm, I'm not sure, like bad business or bankruptcy or the, the person committed suicide, the owner of the cemetery um, business. And let me throw this, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw something for you to think yeah, about. Yeah. Okay, so, so imagine this. So she was buried in December 2nd of 1983. All right. Yeah. Her, head, her, her headstone was, was made, but they didn't let it. They didn't let them put it on. So the students wrote letters. They get permission. So they finally put it on in May, five months away. Okay. So, and again, I'm, I'm not saying this is fact. I'm just throwing something at you to think about. Okay. So I believe that they knew where she was, but they couldn't put the headstone where she was because they had already buried somebody on top. You yes. gotta remember there's a body on top. And we know that because they had to quit burying bodies in 1983. 
the reason Virginia Younger becomes the owner is because the actual owner at that time had to transfer to somebody else's name because he was being sued. So they didn't start bearing anybody again until 1986. So for there to have been a body on top of her, you can't put a headstone there because the other person's family is going to be like, uh, that's not her grave. You know what I mean? Mm. So I think in the vicinity, but not necessarily on a grave. And again, that's just a theory I have. Oh, no, I, I completely agree. And the person was uh, buried three feet. Like, mm-hmm. who does that? Unless yeah. you are trying to be sus, knowing that there's something three feet underneath that, you know, or whatever the case may be. But yeah, we're just we're just throwing it out there. No. <laughs> Prior to this film, have you did you even know that there was a video of her funeral out there? I didn't. Nope. And that's actually her obituary. So that's really wow. her obituary. That's the actual. That's not the actual bagpipe song, but that is the version played. That they used that day by the bagpipes. And that is uh, Peter Gunis's. I had him reread it for the film. That is what he read that day at the gravesite. So, wow. I put, a, wow. I, I put some work into it. You put a lot of love and heart into this documentary. Oh my gosh. And I guess as, as a, cause I think we pretty much just answered all these, this last question, but is there any more information that you've received outside of this after completing your documentary that you'd like me to share to the listeners? Absolutely. Well, here's something. So uh, the night I debuted, I debuted for Brian McGlynn. We did it at the movie theater, MX theater downtown. That was for him and any policeman that wanted to come after the movie was over. He came up to me. He said, I wanted to let you know that uh, because this was coming out, I decided to call the Smithsonian to see if there was any other information that they might have had that we didn't have anymore. And they told me that they still had a six-inch section of her bone, and would I like it back? And I told, and he told them yes. So the police now have six inches of her bone, so they don't have to disturb her, uh, her grave again, but at the same time, they can still do future testing. So that's that's a beautiful thing. That is, oh my gosh. And I'm proud of that too, because he may not have called, he may or may not have called, but because of the film, it helped get that call done sooner, I guess I could say. Yeah. My gosh. A hundred percent, a hundred times fold kudos to you, the group, the rest of the law enforcement, the ones that actually came back, the ones who have been dedicated since the beginning. Parabon. And I, t- I tell you what, pe- people don't know this. I mean, really, this is probably one of the first times I'm speaking on it. But uh, the, the National Center for Exploited and Missing Children, I actually had a conversation with a couple ladies that were there. And they uh, they helped guide me. They, they told me, you know, you're, you're, you're getting a great relationship on this film. Don't want it. Don't make the police look bad. And honestly, it wasn't about making them look bad. I was going to... I did my film. I have no speculation. Everything in my film is verified by a doctor or a police officer. So I wanted nothing but the truth that's in the film. And I genuinely believe for what they had to work with, they did what they could. You, you know what I mean? Could, could they did something different? Yeah, but we're looking at, at eyes from 2022. Our eyes would have been different in 1983. You, you know what I mean? So, I mean? Well, for sure. I mean, coming from... I've come from neighborhoods like that, 
the river east so river west was all the little pretzies next to the marquette university we were on the other side of the river there was yeah heroin crack prostitutions gangs people i watched a, a man beat his wife or girlfriend in the middle of the street bloodied and you know it's i've seen it and mm -hmm. i was a victim uh, from a couple of those things as well so i I've seen it, and it's the point of having the cops from that time of childhood. You it leaves a bad taste in your mouth in thinking that you could respect and and call on, you know, someone who is supposed to serve and protect the community. When in our eyes, in our view, during a time of need, you know, they were the persons who were either part of it or delayed in their response or automatically be made us considered the guilty before we were identified as innocent based on our status based on where we lived and it was not my fault you know mm -hmm. so yeah i i give props where props is due and i think from the bottom of my heart all the people that the law enforcement the medical examiners all the interviewees that you have worked with you yourself like parabon kudos kudos props i give full uh respect to people who were in so much passion from the get-go something that was important to me in this film as i did the research before was that uh i had heard all these names but didn't know who the people were so i thought it was very important to put a face with every name so that's why you'll find a picture for everybody and honestly the picture of virginia younger was given to us by uh a researcher at WashU who had written a paper about Washington Park Cemetery. So mm. uh, that was great to get that picture from them. A couple of the pictures Mary found. So I would say, hey, Mary, I've been looking for this picture for three months. I'd have it in like two days. Like, I think this is it. So, so yeah, she was really hard on that. I thought that was important. You always talk, you, you, you've been talking about the full circle thing. So I wanted to explain kind of how I, I had a guided hand help this. So from the moment I decided to do first thing I wanted to do was uh had to get Bragoon. He was still alive, I had to get Bragoon, but I don't know anything like that. Well, my cousin's uh, a cop. So I said, I'm trying to find this old officer named Bragoon. I know he's alive, but I don't know where. He's like, Bragoon, I know Bragoon. She said, Let me call you right back. So he called back, he said, Wasn't him. I'm like, Oh, okay. He said, But it was his son, so he's gonna give you a call. So he calls me up, we arranged the interview. So then I'm like, Okay. I want to see Washington Park, what it looked like. We go there, we can't find the grave. There's a guy cutting the uh, grass. So I asked uh, Lee and my daughter to go talk to the guy. And they come back and they say, uh, he's going to show us where it's at. But not only that, he was one of the volunteers that helped to dig her up. <laughs> I'm like, what? And, and he's going to give us an interview. So wow. was yeah, I was looking for Abby Styling, who's the research assistant, or excuse me, the researcher that found the body when it was lost i was looking for her for almost two years and literally the the day that i decided that at the end of this week i'm going to stop recording we're going to start the editing process she sent me an email said i'll do it so she was the last interview we got and she gave me 12 minutes and every second of her interview was in the film like, like she just had an infectious personality and personally i believe she's a hero because 
who looks at a picture and says, I can find you, you, you know what I mean? Like, that's incredible. But then, like, the whole CC thing, I wasn't expecting that. It just all fell in line, like, everything. So let me tell you about Eric. So me and Eric have known each other since 1993, and this has affected us both in different ways. And even though we've seen each other throughout the years, we have never talked about this case to each other. So I posted on Facebook, hey, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to do a film about this case. So he inboxes me, and he's like, uh, you mean the, the little girl that was killed on the west side? And I'm like, yeah. He said, dude, I was there that day. I'm like, what? So what Eric told me, uh, not just me, if you go on my uh, YouTube page, you'll see him talking. And uh, he says that, uh, and he's told us this before on film too, that he the first day he ever heard of the word nylon was on the scene that day. So until he was like older, mature, more mature, Every time he heard the word nylon, he associated with the little girl being tied up. That was his association for that. So that was crazy. And Dr. Carter, that was crazy. So I'm sitting at home watching YouTube, and I'm like, man, I got to find a, a medical examiner that speaks in words I understand. Because I had it quite a few months at this point, but I, what am I looking at? I'm not a doctor. So I'm watching YouTube, and she pops on on a, on a YouTube thing. I'm like, I'm going to reach out to her. So I reach out to her. And what's great about her was her first email told me, yes, I'll do it. Uh, I don't charge anything, which was great. I didn't have money to pay her anyway. And then she said, but, you know, uh, I got some things I got to take care of first. So I had to wait just a month, which wasn't that long for an interview. I'm, I'm sure you know that. So it just was incredible that, that she came with as much information as she did. Everybody just fell in line, fell in line. Then I wanted to say, you know, we haven't talked about the psychic. Yeah, I was trying. I was I like I I didn't know how much time you had, but I I kind of had more questions in regards to that. I just if you had tidbits on it, feel free to share. I just didn't have any questions in regards to it. So, well, I, I won't say about the psychic, but I am proud that we're clearing up the fact that she didn't mail it back because she did. So. So there was a return receipt or a proof of delivery, correct? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I figured there was something like that. So <laughs> someone's holding out on something in the de in some department. Something fell through the cracks. I'm trying to. Is this an inside job? I'm just going to throw it out there, and whoever catches it, it comes up a lot. Yeah. They, I mean, people talking about that comes up a lot. I, yeah. I'll say this when in talking to the cops, like. When he told me, yeah, I got the receipt, like in my head, I'm thinking like, you know, you can't tell me that. So even when we're getting done, I'm like, can I use this? And honestly, you saw him, then he just was like, yeah, it's time. It, it's time people know. And, you know, he also, they also said, you know, we never said she didn't return it. Other people did. We just didn't correct them. So. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, because I'm like, when you are giving that type of evidence, and I think there was even a mention in there, unless unless it was just my mind saying it, but wouldn't you give at least a, just a piece of material? They don't need to have the all of the material, but milling the whole only evidence that you have <laughs> and then say that it's lost. Like my mind was on a tangent in regards to that. So, yeah. I won't say, yeah, I not against you or anything. I'm not going to say whether I feel one way or another about, you know, people being clairvoyant or whatever, but I will say in the research, 
three separate psychics all said the head was in water. So I don't know how they would have had the other person's readings or whatever, mm-hmm. but three and one was recent. So yeah, the thought when you said it was on a boat to Mexico, I was just like, that's a little far fetched. But I can't, not I can't. Really. It, it, not really. No, 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 no. no. If, if I believed in it, let me just say this: I'm not saying I do because I honestly I don't. But I wouldn't say it's far fetched because the Mississippi River goes to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that is true. And that is a, true. There's a lot of barges that come through here, so it's if you believe in it, it's not far fetched. Yeah, it's not. I when I meant by far fetched, I'm just saying like anything's possible. But I'm like, that would have never crossed my mind in regards to it. So, but yeah, that's interesting how three separate psychics said the same thing. Thank you for listening to Hands Off My Podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the mission, I do have a Patreon membership that will help the cause and bring more detail on cases and stories from the people of color community. If you yourself has a lost loved one or a story suggestion, please don't hesitate to contact me at email. Handsoffmypodcast at gmail.com And if you are only able to support in another way, please give this podcast a 5-star rating on Apple or Spotify and continue to listen to upcoming episodes every Thursday wherever you listen to your podcast. Dios te bendiga.